Welcome. My name is Nathan Illman, and this is Beneath the Armour podcast, the place where healthcare professionals talk about what it's like to be them in this challenging field, and a place where listeners can come to feel connection through shared experience. Welcome to episode six of Beneath the Armour podcast. So in today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Dana Lee Bagley, and I'm going to read you her introduction from her own website here. Dana is a registered clinical psychologist. She obtained her master's and PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in health psychology from the University of British Columbia. She holds an assistant professor appointment in the Department of Family Medicine and cross appointments in the Department of Surgery and the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Dalhousie University. And she's an adjunct professor at the Department of Industrial and Organisational Psychology at St. Mary's University. I was so excited to speak to Dana after I'd come across her work earlier on this year and heard her on another podcast. And this conversation did not disappoint at all. We go into lots of different things. Dana talks to us a lot about the concepts that she uses with her clients and how these apply to her own life. And she talks and references acceptance and commitment therapy, which we both agree is not so much a strategy or tool, but really an approach to life or a life philosophy that we both live our lives by and find really important and helpful. Dana has a wonderful ability to use metaphors to explain concepts, to make things more accessible to people. And in this episode, she talks about a really great couple of metaphors around our caveman brain and our frontal lobe being like a battery I won't spoil that. I'll let you hear for hear it for yourself. But it's really great for understanding our own behaviour and basically why sometimes we just get drained and are unable to do the things that we want to or just be the person that we want to be. Dana talks about some of her own journey with things like self-care. We get into that a little bit. We talk about the role of kindness and compassion with ourselves. And we talk about this in the context of the current pandemic and really how you know, a lot of the ways in which we are treating ourselves and things may have been going well previously have just gone out the window. And actually, do you know what? It's okay for things to not be perfect right now because of this crazy situation that's going on. Dana also talks about parenting quite a bit. And that's something I absolutely love is her willingness to be very open about the role of being a mum and some of the struggles that she's faced with that and how her mind continues to give her some self-criticism about this sort of thing. And, you know, we both talk about that being quite normal and I share some of my own stuff around that sort of thing as well. And we also talk about the role of rigidity and inflexibility in our lives. I think this conversation will appeal to any healthcare professional. We don't particularly go into working as a psychologist. We talk about work with clients and patients, but really a lot of the concepts and the reflections we make are very general around what it's like to be working in healthcare and what some of the the challenges are. But rather than continuing to ramble on, I am just going to leave you to this great conversation with Dana Lee Bagley. So Dana, welcome to Beneath the Armour. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So um, somewhere I'd like to start is, um, I guess, just thinking about where I came across you, Dana. So from um, Ross McIntosh's podcast and then um, your book, Healthy Habits Suck, um, it'd just be really great to know a little bit about your journey, so professionally where you came from and, and really how you came about to, to writing that book as well. I'd be really in, interested to know um, a bit about that kind of story, if that's okay. 
Sure. Yeah. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training, uh, but I've always worked in the health field. So I've actually never worked in a mental health clinic. Um, I've always been in medical settings. So um, primarily, um, you know, chronic disease or end stage disease. I'm currently working in cancer care. And the book came about actually... I've been working with people with chronic disease for a long time, obesity being one of the common issues that shows up across chronic diseases. So, and also one that I feel has like a lot of myths and misperceptions and stigma. And so that's been an area that I've done a lot of work in as well. Um, and the, you know, the, so the book partly came about from my experiences in working with people and uh, part of my values are around, you know, accessibility and recognizing there's lots of people who will never have access to a psychologist, um, especially around like health issues. And so wanting to offer something that could reach people that I wouldn't normally be able to speak to. It's also really important to me that it's based on science so that that's not like my homespun theories about what to do, but really basing it on science, but trying to package it in a way that is accessible and understandable for people that they can apply to their lives that they can walk away and feel like they have something useful to do. And again, that's from spending so much time using the techniques directly with, um, with patients and clients. They learn over time the things that work and that don't work in applying the science of it. Um, and then finally, there was a bit of a personal journey there too, because after I got separated, I put on a lot of weight and, um, and was doing all these healthy things that I was supposed to and not losing any weight at all. And I discussed that in the book and was suddenly experiencing this thing that patients had talked about, that they're trying really hard, they're doing all the things they're supposed to, and they're not getting like the outcomes that they are supposed to be getting. And so I actually personally had to figure out how am I going to keep doing these things when it's actually not helping me lose weight? Like, what am I, how am I going to keep motivated and how am I going to, and, and of course realized like, oh, this is all the things that I talk about every day with my patients. It's the same thing. Um, and, you know, so that also just allowed me to have kind of a personal story to share also to understand like people's struggles with these things. Yeah. Yeah, and I think something that I, I loved about the book is is how you do share your your personal story. And I think, you know, reading through it, it it, it really I can imagine. I mean, you know, I've, I, you feel very much connected to to you. And I think, um, as you say, it, it's very much grounded on scientific um, based you know methods that we know kind of work. And it, it really helps to have that personal story. I think, doesn't it, when you're trying to follow along and it, it's tough work isn't it changing your behavior in this sort of way and when you're reading the person who has written that book is saying you know this stuff has happened to me and it's really helped me and it's kind of working for me um and you you think it's kind of a similar challenge you've experienced it's um yeah i think it makes it more believable and you know you yeah you're more likely to follow along aren't you um, yeah, and I think that kind of normalizing it and like sharing that it's hard is helpful for patients to understand that they're not alone. I do a lot of training with healthcare providers also in kind of behavior change training and um, helping them use evidence-based um, techniques within their scope of practice to support, you know, self-management of chronic disease. So that's things like teaching them motivational interviewing or behavior modification or even some acceptance and commitment therapy skills within their scope of practice. Mm -hmm. And I often like to remind them that, um, you know, healthcare providers are really abnormal creatures, right? So like most healthcare providers, like the amount of school that we go through to get to where we are, like the average human doesn't go through that, um, mm -hmm. doesn't have that much self-control. And so we, things that are easy to us because we have a lot of self-control 
um, are not easy for other people because their self-control is not that there's individual differences that can be based on genetic factors and learning histories and things completely outside of people's control about how much willpower or self-control we have and that healthcare providers are actually the abnormal ones. We are the outliers, not our patients. Um, and so to keep that in mind and when we're thinking about what we expect patients to do, uh, one, we're typically asking them to do way more than what we're personally doing ourselves, right? Um, when you have a chronic disease, the list of things you're supposed to be doing gets very, very long um, and and really, really sucks. Um, and so most of us are actually not doing all the things that we should be doing to stay healthy. And that we have way more self-control on average uh, because we've had to have that much self-control to make it through that much school. And the typical human doesn't go through that much school. So we're actually the outliers. That's it's such an important point, isn't it? I, I think for myself, I forget that sometimes, you know, particularly with the work I do with clients sometimes. Um, you know, I've recently in my role, I've done a lot of work with parents and, you know, there's a lot of distress going on in these families and people's capacity for, for taking on new things and behavior changes is, is compromised, you know, when there is a lot of stress, lack of sleep, all those sorts of things. And I think part of the problem I find is you have so many great ideas and you know, there's lots of stuff that can work and you go in and you you can just see that oh, this, you know, this thing could work and this thing could help. But you just have to really slow yourself down, don't you? And, and really sort of meet people at where, where they're at. Yeah, and so one of the ways I talk about that is about, um, I refer to it as respect the statue, which is uh, Michelangelo, when he talked about the Statue of David, said that the statue was already in the marble and he, his job was just to reveal the statue that was already there. And that's how I think humans show up in the world. I don't think children are mounds of clay that you can turn into whoever you want them to be. Um, I think they come pre-baked with all kinds of genetic limitations to who they are. And so we seem to have some respect around that for around height, for example, right? There's no amount of love, no amount of parenting, and no amount of believing in your dreams that's going to make you um, seven foot three, right? There are genetic limitations on um, how tall you can be. But there's probably also genetic limitations on how smart you are, how much self-control you have, how extroverted you are, right? All of these other things um, that we, we want to kind of respect the range of who somebody can be. There is a limit on how much people can change. And no amount of therapy and no amount of parenting is going to make an extrovert an introvert or an introvert an extrovert. We can mm. make an extrovert that's good at hanging out by themselves. We can make an introvert who is good at socializing with others. But the extrovert's always going to be better at socializing, and the introvert's always going to be better at being by themselves, and that's okay. So part of our job is respecting the statue of who people are, that there are limits on who they can be and how much they can change. Just because somebody can run a marathon in two hours doesn't mean everyone can. Just because somebody can get to a normal BMI doesn't mean everybody can, right? Respect the statue of who people are, help them be the best version of them, but that might not be in the normal range, right? Mm. Just because, you know, you might want their um, blood sugars to get to like four or seven, right? Uh, but they might run an average of 50. So getting to 30 is actually a great thing for them, like respecting the statue of who people are, because those statues really are due to reasons that are outside of our choice and outside of our control, right? You can see temperament in babies, right? That is not because they've learned it and it's not because of parenting. Yeah. Uh, they're coming pre-baked, right? So respect the statue of who people are. That really reminds me actually of, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of Russell Barkley. He's an American professor. He's prolific in the sort of world of ADHD. 
Um, and he, he talks about, um, he, he, you know, he does talk specifically to parents and he says to them, you need to forget this idea that you are the architect or engineer of your child. You are more like a, um, it's like you're sort of shepherding them. You know, you're, you're, you, can, you can provide the environment that is going to nurture them and those sorts of things. And you can try and protect them from danger. And, and, but there's, you know, there's going to be storms and things and you, you cannot change the sheep necessarily. It's, you know, they're, they're born, you know, I think he talks about, you know, you're born with like about 400 different traits or something, which are right. basically genetically yeah. determined. Yeah. Yeah. And that's to me, you know, the art of parenting is also figuring out the range of who your child is and helping them be the best version of that. But some people will be C students and it doesn't matter how hard they try, they're not going to be A students. And some people are fantastic at like, you know, using their hands and, and building stuff and, you know, construction and all kinds of things doesn't, not everyone should go to university. Like let's respect the statue of who people are, help them be the best version of that, um, but not expect them to change the range of who they are. And I think that's true for therapists. And I also think that's true for healthcare providers of like, let's respect the range of who people are. Yeah, yeah, that's a, such a such a great point. Um, something I'd like to sort of come back to. So, with respect to we were talking about you talking about your personal journey in the book and your own story, I think something for me that that sort of struck out, I guess, is that use of self disclosure about you know you, you being a professional a psychologist and you're talking about your own personal journey. And I think for me, that's something that has really shifted over the years. So. Um, when I was doing my sort of doctoral training about five or six years ago, um, there really was not much kind of um, encouragement to use self-disclosure. I think if anything, it was, you know, it was kind of frowned upon and I came from a more, I was trained primarily in uh, traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. And I remember having experiences with, with clients where I'd be sitting there and just be thinking lots of stuff and you know I'd have this this basically it's the armor on you know I'm the therapist I'm a psychologist I'm not going to say this this stuff um and over the years that's really shifted and changed and I think a lot of that has come from learning about ACT acceptance and commitment therapy and and the role of um, how it can be helpful or useful and also from I guess doing quite a lot of reading around the role of vulnerability and courage and how you can you know how actually um, showing our weaknesses in, in certain situations is very normalizing for junior colleagues and in sort of leadership. So I'd just be really interested to, to hear about your kind of journey with that as well. Like, ha- have you always been someone who's been willing to self-disclose um, or at what point did that change? And also perhaps in your, so maybe in your professional life, but also in your personal life as well. Like how much do you feel you're, you're willing to share with, you know, your friends and family, that sort of stuff? Uh, yep. So I was also trained in kind of traditional CBT and, and they have a certain stance for the therapist, which is that you're the expert and you're kind of, you set the agenda and you're, you know, solving problems. Um, and, I, and I, and it's a very well empirically supported intervention. So this is not a knock on CBT in any way. It's a very well established um, therapy. Um, uh, but I was not, I always thought I was a terrible CBT therapist. And then I found ACT and I realized that it just spoke more to me. Um, you know, and I described ACT, I went to a, a workshop once and she said, you know, what we're going to teach today isn't a tool. It's like the, the, the shed up for the tools. And to me, ACT isn't the tool and it's not the shed. It's actually the house where I live. Like ACT is not an intervention that I use with clients. It is the way I see the world. It is how I understand humans. It's how I understand my kid. It's how I understand my colleagues. It's how I understand my patients. 
And I use it all the time in my day-to-day life to guide my own decisions and figure out, you know, my own behaviors. And so, and there is an expression about the first person you should do act with is yourself. Right. Um, And so, so, so it actually was a a learning experience to figure out how to disclose and, and it's more, you know, in act the therapist stance is much more like the two mountains, which is like, you know, the client's on a mountain and I'm on a mountain and it's not because I have everything figured out. It's just that from my viewpoint on my mountain, I can see things about your journey up the mountain that you can't see yourself because you're in the trees. So I'm here to, you know, help support you in your journey. Uh, But it, but, you know, I'm not there to fix stuff. I'm not the expert. Um, You know, I'm, I have my own problems as well. It also, you know, impacts me because I live in a fairly small town in Canada, and like relatively speaking. And so I often end up in like sort of dual relationships with people. Mm. And again, based on like the code of ethics in these small towns, like you sometimes have no choice. And we do accept some level of dual relationships, because otherwise, people don't get services, right. And so that it's more unethical to have them not receive any services than to have a dual relationship and of course we're trying to minimize that as much as possible but I end up at the grocery store with patients and I end up at Christmas parties with patients Um, it's really unavoidable and I think about it like a family doctor in a small town that you're part of the community so it's actually much easier for me to disclose things with patients because I'm going to run into them at the supermarket. And so if I've already talked about struggling as a parent and then they see me struggling as a parent with my kid in the grocery store, you know, we've already had that conversation and it's not as hard for me. Um, and it's just easier for me to show up as a, as a human rather than a therapist so that I can live my life as well and not feel like I have to, you know, have a certain you know, look or be a certain way because I'm a psychologist, Mm. um, that I get to be just a human as well. But it was, and in my personal life, I certainly had a major, you know, that was a big shift for me as well to be able to be vulnerable. Um, you know, I talk about, uh, people, I, you know, you know, the wire monkey study, and like Harlow's Monkeys. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that Harlow's Monkeys was like a story, like a, you know, um, experiment in the 50s about attachment. And at the time, they thought that mothers were only meaningful because they were like sources of food and there was nothing else they were doing. And so Harlow did these experiments with these little Reese's monkeys. And uh, they would have a cloth monkey mom and they had a wire monkey mom. And the little Reese's monkeys always went to the cloth the cloth monkey, even when the milk was only available at the wire monkey, they would like run over and drink the milk and then run back to the cloth monkey. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that in terms of how to show up with other people, um, that we can be wire monkeys, or we can be cloth monkeys. And we can, you know, there's fiery wire monkeys, which is that, you know, they're angry people. And we can kind of understand like why we don't feel connected to them, because they seem angry all the time. But there's also cold wire monkeys. And those are people who are fine. I'm okay. I'm not showing any emotion at all. I'm actually smiling at you and asking how your day is. And it's actually hard to connect with that as well, because you're still being a wire monkey. You're still not sharing anything that people can connect with. And so, you know, um, but I naturally show up as a cold wire monkey. Like I'm fine. Everything's good. I got it under control. And it's taken me a while to learn how to be a cloth monkey, which means like being messy and like 
crying and like having problems and, you know, disclosing that vulnerability. Um, but it's much easier if there's something there to connect with that vulnerability and that messiness is what people can connect with. And, and I don't actually like being messy. It's not a comfortable place to be, but the people in my life much prefer me as a cloth monkey than a wire monkey. And that has been like a big learning in my own personal life as well. And so I often say, you know, sometimes it's not about being more resilient. It's about falling apart more effectively. That when we fall apart more effectively by sharing vulnerability with trusted people, um, then we get the support and the help that we need. That we're not meant to go through life on our own. We're not meant to be independent creatures. We are meant to be in a village, surrounded by support, getting help from other people. And sometimes when we're too fine, then we actually don't get that support that we need. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that I've I've gone through this year is is actually acknowledging when I've been feeling really stressed and overwhelmed and sort of almost giving myself permission to be like, I'm not okay actually. <laughs> um, and you know, I think um, was quite heavily leaning on my wife at times to, you know, she's supporting me. But then actually, outside of that, was perhaps giving the impression that things were okay and. Um, you know, it's, we all struggle and especially during this time, it's just stressful and it's, there's so much uncertainty and um, it's okay to not be okay, isn't it? It's, um, it's yeah, really I really think people are underestimating the stress of the pandemic and how difficult it is to live in a pandemic. And I've been saying that our, um, our desire to pretend that everything is normal is making us all crazy mm. because you know, psychologically being in the pandemic is like being in an active war zone. Mm. Um, so if you walked outside and you saw the buildings were crumbling because the enemy had bombed the town, uh, you wouldn't wonder like, why do I feel so anxious lately? Like, why am I having trouble sleeping? Be like, uh, yeah, because uh, you're in an active war zone. <laughs> and what's the challenge is we walk outside and it looks kind of normal. And so yeah. we kind of think, well, I guess I'm supposed to feel normal too. Like you're not. And we shouldn't have the same expectations of what people can get done. You know, like if if we were in an active war zone, we wouldn't be asking like, you know, did you clean your closets during lockdown? Um, no, I was just surviving. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right? We would have more appropriate expectations and we don't right now. I think, you know, we're expecting people to act like it's normal and it's not normal. And trying to meet those standards is actually, you know, harming all of us. Yeah, I totally agree. I think so this is probably a good segue onto talking about sort of self-care and how we're looking after ourselves then. Um, so something I said to you just at the beginning was, you know, I was really, I think it was on People's Soup when you were talking to, to Ross about your own self-care routine. I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure you said you, you try and dedicate two hours per day to self-care. And honestly, that listening to you say that was a real turning point for me. Um, I think it was maybe the beginning of this year I heard you say that. And I just thought it, it's, you know, I've, I've worked on my own self-care. And, I, you know, I've always kind of exercised and sort of tried to eat well and those sorts of things. But it, it just really made me think about actually other things and how you can fill that time with other stuff to, to really, to, it's just about you. Um so yeah, would it be right to just talk about, I mean, what your self-care looks like now in this time, but a, a bit about your journey with self-care. So like whether that's not been as good as it has been now in the past yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm a mom, I have a 10 year old son and uh, I'm divorced. So I've been, you know, uh, 
part-time single mom. He goes back and forth between me and his dad um, for about five years now. Um, and so certainly as a mom, when I had a young kid, I was not taking care of myself really at all, um, just kind of getting by. And uh, it really was around the same time of writing that book and realizing how much effort I had to put into these healthy habits of realizing I, I'm going to have to do this forever. Like, uh, this isn't just some quote unquote diet I'm going to do. I'm going to have to do this forever of taking care of myself. So how am I going to keep this up? And I do use that as a marker, those like, do I have two hours every day to, you know, and I typically spend it on going to the gym and making healthy food. Do I have those two hours every day? And that becomes a marker for have I taken on too much? Mm. So um, certainly the pandemic has changed a lot of that. So one of the ways that I like explaining how we're reacting to the pandemic is understanding like our caveman brain and our frontal lobe. So our caveman brain being, you know, the place where emotions come from, appetite regulation, learning, memory. Um, and it's well designed for survival when our life expectancy was 30 and we were, you know, cave people. Um, it functions automatically and unconsciously. So if you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll pull your hand away before you consciously register pain. You have no choice about how that caveman brain shows up. It shows up for survival reasons. It's compelling. It's trying to save your life and you can't shut it off and you have no choice about what shows up there. Um, and then the other kind of relevant part is our frontal lobe, which is like the prefrontal cortex, which basically controls behavior. That's uh, where willpower comes from, self-control, executive functioning, starting behavior, stopping behavior, inhibiting behavior. That's all your frontal lobe. But unlike your caveman brain, our frontal lobe is like a battery. And so we will spend that battery of like self-control, like getting through our day and controlling our behaviors. And so in COVID-19, our caveman brains are on fire and our frontal lobe batteries are incredibly spent, right? Uh, there is a threat, right? There is this ongoing threat and caveman brains don't care about probabilities. They don't care about how many cases are in your neighborhood. They just see threats and they, you know, do their thing, just like pulling your hand off a hot stove, right? You have no choice about how that functions. Mm. And if you are a well-functioning human, it has activated all these things to help you deal with a threat. Of course, those things are really effective when you have a bear attack, and that's what the threat is. Not quite as effective when it's about wearing a mask and, you know, washing your hands. Like, that's not built into our caveman brain. And so we really need our frontal lobe to be able to do those things. But our frontal lobes are spent because it takes so much more effort to get through a COVID day than a non-COVID day. There's so many more new behaviors that we have to do. You know, even the like not hugging someone when you see them, if they're not, you know, in your bubble or, you know, if you're trying to social distance, like the like that inhibition to not hug someone when you see them and you haven't seen them for a long time. Right. That's a basic example. But every day we have to spend so much more effort to control our behavior. And so our caveman brains are on fire and our frontal lobe batteries are incredibly spent in COVID. And so I've talked a lot about self-care and we actually did an intervention in the hospital where I work for frontline providers during the first wave of COVID called Charge Your Battery. And it was an ACT intervention to help healthcare providers charge their frontal lobes, charge their batteries. And basically a recharging activity is something that makes you feel more energetic at the end than when you start, right? So typical ones are things like sleep or eating healthy foods, um, you know, being in nature, socializing, physical activity are common recharging activities, but they're not a, a to-do list, right? They 
they're not a should. So, you know, you might think, well, it's healthy for me to go for a walk. So I should go for a walk. If you don't actually feel lighter, if you don't actually feel more energetic at the end of that walk, then it's not a recharging activity. It might be healthy, but we're not counting it as a recharging activity. Mm -hmm. They should be like self-reinforcing that you actually feel more energetic and you want to do it again to be a recharging activity. And so to focus a lot on recharging our batteries. And so uh, definitely my self-care during COVID has gone very haywire. I was a frontline provider. I was in the hospital. We were going to, you know, my secretary was assigned to the COVID assessment center. So we were all waiting to get redeployed uh, to COVID units. Um, if there was a big surge, I ended up being redeployed to the service to provide therapy for frontline providers, as well as medical first responders of the shooting in Nova Scotia, which was, you know, a huge mass shooting. And so I ended up doing that. And um, we, I so definitely things started to fall apart. And there was a lot of times that we were just surviving. Um, and also to think about charging your battery, like think about how often you charge your cell phone, right? Because people would be like, Oh, well, I went on vacation two weeks ago, I'd be like, well, yeah, that's great. But that doesn't count today. Like you have to keep charging it because you keep using it up. Um, and again, it's more complicated in COVID. Some of the things that we naturally would do, going to the workplace is often a natural recharger, right? So getting dressed, having a shower, leaving the house, those like mini social interactions that we have, like by the water cooler, like in the lunchroom, um, having a sense of purpose, having a routine. Those are natural rechargers that we suddenly don't have when we're working from home. If you have like, if you had children at home, not going to school and you're trying to work from home, that is an incredible stressor. And there's actually data showing, you know, that overall suicidality has increased, not deaths, but thinking and feeling about suicide has increased overall. Um, and one of the groups that it has increased more than average is parents with children in the mm -hmm. home because it is that stressful to try to, you know, manage your children and work from home, which is, again, we should be adjusting our expectations. Um, I've often said about the pandemic that it's the same storm, but different boats. So our experience of the pandemic is dramatically different based on our circumstances. So if you're a frontline provider going to a hospital versus somebody who gets to work from home versus someone who has kids at home versus somebody who lost their job, the experience of the pandemic is really different. And it's actually our job to share what our boat is with other people. You know, and I've been encouraging people to to link that with your values, to understand what are your values? Why are you wearing a mask? Because it actually totally sucks, right? What are your values around social distancing um, in order to have some motivation to do it, to make it clear that that's part of your values so that we can communicate our vote to other people. And so it is harder to recharge in a pandemic. Some of the things that we normally do, we can't do. We have to be like more creative about it. And we actually have to be way more deliberate about it because we don't have some of these natural rechargers that show up. Um, so one of the things that I, you know, hope sticks around after COVID is like this recognition about mental health and the importance of that. And to me, that's about charging your battery, about making sure you have enough battery to keep going. Yeah, I absolutely love that uh, metaphor, the, the recharging your batteries. I think it's so helpful and it's just so tangible, isn't it, for people in the age of smartphones and devices. I think people can really connect with that. Um, yes. And we would actually check in with each other. You know, we would have, we would, there's a battery emoji <laughs> on my yeah. phone and 
we would send that to each other to check up on each other. Because again, the culture of healthcare is not about like self-care, right? It's about putting patients first. And so that's not, you know, you're not going to get a lot of support from like the system of healthcare around self-care. So we would make these little mini cultures Mm -hmm. uh, with other trusted people to check in on our batteries and see like, where's your battery charge today? And you know, where, where, what do you need to do to charge it tomorrow? It's a really common sentence in my household to hear me say, I don't have any frontal lobe left. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or I can't answer that question. I have no frontal lobe left. Or I really wish I wasn't yelling at you right now, but I have no frontal lobe left. Right? <laughs> it's just a cue for other people in the household to, to let it go, right? That we really wish we could show up differently and better, but there's no more frontal lobe to control that. Um, and so it's just a cue to try to be kind to ourselves and be kind to other people and then refocus on what are you going to do tomorrow to be able to charge your battery. So something I'd, I'd like to, to go into a little bit actually is, is that role of being kind to ourselves. Um, so I think f- for me this year, something I've really worked on a lot is actually being kinder to myself and um, being more deliberate about, being compassionate towards myself and making that more of a practice. And um, I, I've been meditating for a few years now and trying to make part of that self-compassion part of that meditation practice. Um, and I think, you know, this idea of being kind to ourselves is something that I find people f- that they struggle with. I mean, healthcare providers, I think a lot as well, because there's often a lot of self-sacrifice um, and especially in this time, the pressure to help and support other people is just enormous, isn't it? And actually, it's very easy to forget about ourselves. So I'd just be really curious to hear about yourself and, and what role, you know, kindness, whether you have any kind of formal practice of that self-compassion or whether it's just you've, you've tried to incorporate that as like a more of a habit, the kind of self-talk that you have in your mind, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so um, it's, Definitely, uh, it's sort of more self-talk for me. That's how it tends to show up. So, for example, like lately, I've been telling people it's really important to blame the pandemic, right? Because we start Mm. blaming ourselves, like, what's wrong with me? Why am I behaving this way? Why can't I get my stuff together? Like, people are relapsing and falling into old habits. One, because your caveman brain's on fire and it's trying to help you, right? When we talk about gaining weight during the pandemic, for example, right? Appetite regulation run by your caveman brain. And it's, again, set off a cascade of things you have zero control over, which if, you know, you were about to like fight a war with the other tribe or you had to go across country to find a new place for your tribe, like having extra pounds on you would actually help you do that. And we have zero control over that. And again, our frontal lobes are spent. So we often are not doing the coping strategies that we might have learned to do that were helping us stay stable about that, whether it's like depression, anxiety, right, those kinds of things. So I've been saying it's important to blame the pandemic. It's important to acknowledge this isn't me. This is actually a really difficult thing to live through. Um, And staying steady is a win, right? So uh, people often kind of think that, you know, self-criticism, being hard on themselves is going to help keep them motivated. And I like giving the example of if you think of like, um, you know, if you think of those Clydesdale horses, you know, they're like these majestic, Mm. beautiful horses, and they will pull these carts and carriages. You know, if you want to get the horse to move, you can hit it with a stick or you can, you know, motivate it with carrots. And it's this question about carrots versus sticks. And if you think about, you know, if you hit the horse with a stick, it will move like it will go. But over time, what happens to the horse that's being beaten by this stick? And how does the horse feel about you as an owner when you're beating it with a stick? 
versus the carrot, right? And so we know that, yes, you know, self-blame, criticism, shame can sometimes start behavior change, but it never keeps it going, right? You need to be moving towards something that matters and not just away from something bad. And so that self-kindness to ourselves can get us, you know, criticism that self-criticism comes from our caveman brain. So when we feed into that self-criticism, again, it's like our caveman brains are on fire and there's even less frontal lobe left to make a healthy choice because, again, your caveman brain's on fire because we've fueled it with all this, you know, believing in the self-criticism that shows up automatically, but we can feed it or not feed it, right? And so that self-kindness allows that caveman brain to settle down a little bit so it frees up some frontal lobe to make a healthy choice. And again, the healthy choices are always the opposite of what our caveman brains want us to do because they're always about some long-term benefit. They're always about experiencing pain in the short term and not experiencing pleasure in the short term. So they're never what our caveman brain wants us to do. So it entirely depends on your frontal lobe battery. So, So we, you know, incorporate that both for ourselves, you know, for myself, and also when we're training healthcare providers about how they want to motivate patients as well, you know, finding something to move towards that is meaningful and value-based versus getting away from something bad, some bad health outcome, right? Um, that shame and blame game does not help them make good choices. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's the, um, and again, that, the metaphor you use there with the, the, um, the horse and the stick and yeah I think that's just it's such a lovely way of illustrating isn't it um and it, it helps people again it makes it more tangible to understand you know the, the role of this um something that I think I've realized you know over the past few months for me like what shows up one of the, the main things when my mind tries to to sort of be critical or something is around it's I think it's it's around some desire to be liked by people sometimes so like if, if I've done something my mind will suddenly you know play things back and it'll be if, if I've perceived that I've said something or done something with a client it's generally with you know at work that the person oh they're not going to like you um and it's been a real journey trying to sort of you know understand that and actually just be okay you know be a bit of acceptance around the fact that do you know what it's actually it's and so what if you you know you said something and that person didn't necessarily like what you said it's okay to not be liked the whole time and you know the desire to be liked is actually coming from your caveman brain and that's a really adaptive thing if you live in a tribe and getting kicked out of the tribe will mean death right? That's why we care so much about what other people think about us. And if you live in a tribe with like 20 people and you get to see all the ins and outs of their lives, it's okay to compare yourself to other people because you actually get to see all the crappy parts about their life and the good parts about their life because, you know, you live in this village with them. Um, The problem that shows up is in our modern world where you have Facebook and you can be, you know, social media, you can be exposed to like millions of other people, who only put the good stuff on social media, right? They're not putting all the difficult things up on social media, but the desire, you know, about what other people think about you is a really normal thing. And I like to remind people, you know, the people who don't care about what other people think of them are sociopaths. Like those are the psychopaths. Like, those are like school shooters, like the, the people who are socially isolated and don't care what other people think of them is not necessarily healthy. That doesn't mean we want to spend our whole lives trying to please people. Because again, in our modern world, it doesn't work very well. That doesn't like, it doesn't make sense anymore. And so, you know, where I'm often trying to 
you know, both for myself and for, you know, patients and friends and family, like think about it being value-based because then at least you can remind yourself that I did something that was consistent with my values and what was important to me. And, and then we can make space for the discomfort that shows up if other people don't like that. Right. And it's important to remember that your caveman brain is just always going to criticize you. So you can do something that matters to you and get criticized, or you can do something you didn't want to do and get criticized. Your brain's still going to criticize you no matter what. So, you know, maybe pick the thing that matters to you and get criticized for that. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful reminding yourself, you know, I was actually, I was doing my best and I showed up in that conversation in a way that I wanted to. And again, it's part of this thing of like, we all make mistakes and maybe it wasn't even a mistake you made, but, um, and as long as you sort of reframe that and think, well, I can learn from this. And I was being the person I wanted to be and maybe something didn't yep. go quite as well. Or I wasn't. And I'm going to be kind to myself that I can't always show up exactly the way I want to. Right. And if the people make mistakes, I'm going to make mistakes. Um, and that's okay. There's no amount of like, you know, um, practice or resiliency that's going to prevent us from making mistakes. That's part of being a human. We just will. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's just try to make new mistakes instead of maybe the same ones over and over again. <laughs> let's just try and make some new mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can't, I think we can't grow unless we, we are continuing to make mistakes and sort of reflecting on them. Those things that like stretch us, right? That actually like help us grow. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, something I wanted to sort of get into a little bit was this concept of kind of armor. So obviously the podcast is called Beneath the Armor. And um, I've sort of thought about this myself, like what is the kind of armor that shows up for me? Like what what is it that I put on sometimes that can make, I don't know, the way I've sort of conceptualized it a bit sometimes is like d- defensiveness maybe. Um, and I was thinking about this yesterday, it's sort of in preparation for this conversation with you. And I was sort of doing a bit, doing a bit of journaling and then I thought, I'm just going to ask my wife. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to ask you, so what, where does this, where do you think this shows up for me? And I asked her actually about the concept of um, flexibility and rigidity um, because I, was, I just had this sense that I know I'm rigid with some things and I probably get a bit defensive about some things, but maybe I'm going to ask you. So um, I sort of willingly received a bit of feedback from my wife <laughs> and um, she said an area where you're quite, you can be quite rigid is, um, so for example, like we've had conversations where she's learned about some new thing um, and it, it might, so I don't know, if, have you heard of Joe Dispenza before? Dr. Joe Dispenza? Yeah. He's, yeah. he's, he's an American guy and he's done a lot of work with like the power of meditation and self-healing. And there's some really quite bold claims to, to the work. And it's, and it's, it sort of incorporates stuff around epigenetics and um, psychoneuroimmunology and um, quantum physics and stuff. And he sort of claims that it, you know, brings groups of people together and they kind of heal themselves through meditation. And anyway, you know, normally I'm, I'm quite a curious person and, and, of course, like, you know, the work we do with clients, you know, you're, you're trying to avoid that kind of judgmental sort of thing. You're, you're trying to be very curious regardless of what the person is, is bringing. Um, but sometimes when things like this show up where it's like my mind says, that's not evidence-based. There's no, you know, there can't be science behind that. And it's probably because it's just something I don't really, I haven't read about it. I don't know enough about it. And my wife said, you know, you, you just get this like rigidity and get very defensive. And it's like, it's not, it's not you. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious, like for yourself, are, are there areas in your life where you feel you're, you know, perhaps a bit inflexible or you can be a bit rigid or this kind of defensiveness shows up? Yeah, 
right. So certainly I share that same bias about science that, um, you know, if it's if there's no scientific evidence behind it, I have a real reluctance. Um, and that ca causes harm, right? Because there's all kinds of things that um, aren't scientifically based. And, you know, it's a Western, you know, um, bias to believe in science, right? Mm. There are lots of cultures that don't. And so we miss out on things that might be helpful for other clients from other cultures, for example, because there's no evidence base for it. Um, but culturally, it's very healing and helpful. And so it is absolutely a bias. It's definitely one that I hold. And I think a lot about it when I work with like clients from other cultures to be mindful of that, that I'm going to only think that scientifically based things are, you know, count, but there's many, many other things. Um, and that that's complete Western bias. Mm -hmm. The other place I really struggle is in parenting. Uh, so I have a really hard time letting go of the self-criticism around parenting. I pretty much always feel like I'm a failure. I pretty much always think I'm not doing enough. Um, and that is like an ongoing struggle for me to be more flexible. Like, you know, I've done lots of work around it. I have like, you know, we have household values that we've gone through with like everyone in the household came up with them and I have parenting values and I take the matrix out periodically and remind myself, am I moving towards my values as a parent? Uh, but it's a real struggle for me. Um, that one I have a really hard time with. Yeah, I, th I guess that's, it's a very common one, right, for, with, with parenting, because there's just so much room for that kind of feeling like you're not doing good enough, because it's such such a huge task. Um, and yeah. I, I try to remind myself in my effort to be kind that, you know, I was never meant to raise this child by myself. I was supposed to be in a village with a whole bunch of other adults and a whole bunch of other kids. Um, wasn't meant to raise this child all by myself. Uh, to, you know, try and give myself some kindness. Because um, again, when I'm hard on myself, it doesn't go any better. I we don't, you know, it doesn't go. But um, trying to be deliberate about how I want to show up as a parent, um, you know, has helped because at least then when the self-criticism shows up and, it, and it's very, really sticky for me, I have a hard time unhooking from it, that at least I've had some behavior that's been, you know, value consistent. Yeah. And, you know, to keep enough charge in my battery to not leave it all on the field at work and to have some left over when I get home. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's great. It sounds like you've done so much, so much of that work. And with, it sounds like with your son as well, you've got shared like family values at home, you said? Yeah, we have family values that we all went through. And, you know, as a 10-year-old, he kind of mostly grunted at the responses. But he did also come up with some that, you know, he, he actually pointed out. Because we had ones around be kind and, like, you know, be well and things like that. And he's like, we, we don't have anything about being excellent. And he, he's, like, a very high-level athlete. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Like, yeah, that is something. We are all high achievers here. We do like to strive and we do like to challenge ourselves. And so we added that to our values. Um, and, you know, recently I actually changed my job from a full-time job to a part-time job in part because I didn't have enough, and this happened before the pandemic, but um, didn't have enough battery left um, when I got home, didn't have enough flexibility to do the things that my kid needed for me from me now, which was mostly a lot of driving him around to all of his practices mm -hmm. as an athlete. Um, and so, but it was very hard to leave a full-time pensionable job, um, you know, as a single mom. Yeah. Um, and so I really had to, to work through my values around that and um, manage a lot of discomfort around that to kind of show up the way I wanted to. Yeah. Wow. Um, Dana, I know we're going to have to finish soon. I think just my last question for you is, 
um, we haven't really talked that much about your sort of work and and like what you're actually currently working on that sort of thing. So I'm just just curious, what's your vision like for the next you know year or two? Have you got any big projects that you're working on that you're really proud of or you're really excited about? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, it is a bit of a transition year. I made the decision, you know, in November of last year that I wanted to go part time. And I actually only managed to go part time this week. This was my first week of being part time. Congratulations. And in part, there was a lot of reasons why I didn't go to part time right away. But then I actually went back up to full time uh, when COVID hit and um, to offer more support around all the things happening for COVID. Um, so, uh, but one of the things that I did do was I joined, um, a company that does healthy workplace interventions. And for me, that was a bit about moving upstream that I'm often at the end of the line. I'm there when people have end stage disease, when they have cancer, right. Um, and there's lots of things that I do that, that I'm very proud of. Um, and also, you know, the chance to move upstream and do some preventative work. Um, I think workplaces, I think we can leverage workplaces as a resource for health, that that's really where we should be doing primary prevention and hospitals really can't manage that. Um, but workplaces are places where you can, you know, support uh, primary prevention and helping people be healthy. So those are some of the things that I'm working on. And then again, I love doing training both in ACT and in behavior change in general. Um, so those are really a lot of the things that I've been working on, uh, but it is a transition year and has been even more of a transition year because of COVID. So you know, things just take longer during a pandemic. We just don't do things as quickly as we normally do. Uh, I was literally in a meeting the other day and somebody said, I, you know, we had to change this procedure. And I was like, uh, my frontal lobe is too tired. Can you say that again? <laughs> I didn't follow what you're saying. Uh, so things, you know, get slowed down and some things don't happen the way we want them to in a pandemic. And so, uh, but, you know, I'm, uh, those are all decisions made consistent with my values. And so I know that moving towards those is, you know, helping me show up as the person that I want to be. Fantastic. Um, Dana, I, I believe you're on social media and stuff, aren't you? Can you just tell um, listeners where they can find you and yeah, that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter and Facebook and um, Instagram. And my Twitter handle is at Dr. Lee Bagley, which is D-R-L-E-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-Y. And it's the same handle on Facebook and on Instagram. And my website is also drleebagley.com. So D-R-L-E-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-Y.com. And I, I ask frequently about whether people are charging their batteries. So <laughs> on social media. Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? Um, I will also put a link to your book in the show notes. Um, but yeah, Dana, it's been really, really amazing having you on. Thank you so much for, for giving up your time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Wow, I had a lot of fun during that conversation. Even though it was first thing in the morning for me, I'm not sure, well, you wouldn't have noticed if you weren't watching this on YouTube, but I think my face looks a little tired. I was up early because the time difference between Melbourne and uh, Nova Scotia, where Dana is based in Canada, is 13 hours so really the only time that worked for us was uh, me doing it in the morning like that and it was Dana's early evening. But I'm so glad we got to catch up. It was an absolute pleasure and really quite an honour for me. Something I've realised with some of these conversations is it's best not to look at people's CVs and all of their accolades before conversations because interestingly with this concept of armour, 
and the sort of appearance that we give off to people, I think it can make you a little bit scared, almost like that other person is not a human. They are some kind of super person. When you see the number of publications someone has, all the different appointments they have, everything they've achieved, it can make it quite intimidating talking to somebody. And I expect other people have had that experience as well. But as you you would have heard during this conversation, Dana is such a down-to-earth person who's willing to share her own struggle and talk about basically what it's like to be a human as you would have heard in that part, she's talking about working in a small town and just showing up as a fellow human being with the people she works with rather than having this professional hat on and I'm a psychologist and I'm different to you and I'm more superior than you are. So I really hope you enjoyed this. There's some links in the show notes to Dana's work. Also her book, Healthy Habits Suck, is available online and I've put a link to the book in the show notes. It's really a great read. If you are looking to change some of your health behaviours or if you're just interested in the kind of science and behaviour change methods that are evidence-based and uh, can be helpful for other people you might work with, whether it's for some of your own patients or family members, that sort of thing. If you enjoyed today's episode, then why not rate it on iTunes? That would be really helpful for spreading the word of the podcast. And you know, if, if you felt comfortable doing so, sharing the podcast with somebody else that you know who you also think might enjoy it. If you would like to subscribe or get some email updates about the podcast, including some additional details about conversations I'm having with people and some of the issues discussed, then head over to my website at nathanillman.com and you can sign up there. That's all from me for today. I hope wherever you are in the world, you're staying safe and looking after yourself. And I look forward to having you back for the next episode of Beneath the Armour. Goodbye.